Um, so this evening we're starting in Titus 2, um, page number 1198. We start at verse 1. And as we do this, we remember that this is God's word. It says this. You, however, must teach what is appropriate to sound doctrine. Teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. Likewise, teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to too much wine, but to teach what is good. Then they can urge the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind, and to be the subject of, to their husbands, so that no one will malign the word of God. Similarly, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. In everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may not be ashamed, may be ashamed because you, they have nothing bad to say about us. Teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted so that in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. For the grace of God has appeared that offers salvation to all people. It teaches us to say no to ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in this present age while we wait for the blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all wickedness and to purify for himself a people that are his very own, eager to do what is good. These, then, are the things you should teach, encourage and rebuke with all of authority. Do not let anyone despise you. We thank God for the reading of his word. Well, let's uh, take a Bible, if you've got one close to you, and turn to page 1198, if you've got one of the Pew Bibles, 1198, 1199, to Titus chapter 2. We're going to really look, I think, at the first 10 verses this evening under that title, What Must Be Taught to Various Groups in the NIV. My uh, father died 11 years ago this week, and uh, I've never really been one for anniversaries, but, but I suppose I've been thinking about him a little bit more uh, around this time of the year than I, I maybe would be normally. And I, I realized that one of the, the, the things about him was that he taught me much, much more than I ever realized at the time. He was a woodwork teacher for a while. I had a workshop uh, beside the house, and, and I used to spend a fair wee bit of time in there with him. And all the time, he was just gently showing me how to do things and teaching me things. And I, I picked up far, far more of that than, than I realized at the time. And on those very rare occasions when I do something practical around the house, I find myself doing things the way he did them. Not that long ago, I was hammering a nail into some wood that, that was easily split, and I found myself tapping the nail on the concrete first just to blunt the point a little bit, because then the wood doesn't split. Who knew that? 
Well, he knew that, and, and he passed that on to me, and I almost do it now almost in, instinctively. There were many, many things that those years of exposure to his life and his ways of doing things, uh, there were many times that those things just passed on to me in ways that I hardly really understood at the time. Many of you will have had similar experiences, a parent who has shaped how you do some particular thing, or maybe you served time as an apprentice alongside an old master joiner or whatever it was, and they just taught you the ropes, and you realized that you just adopted their practices, and you learned so much from them. That sort of master-apprentice model was used to great effect in your life. Whenever we ask how the church should be, what sort of things should happen here amongst us, one of the answers should be that there should be a whole host of those master-apprentice relationships, father, son, mother, daughter. As the faith is passed on from those who are older in the faith to to those who are younger. And so if I was to ask you uh, what has been really influential in your Christian life, if you are a Christian here this evening, you should think about people, first of all, about, about people who have taken you under their wing and taught the faith to you, modeled the faith to you, people that you could go to with any question, people that whenever you weren't really sure what to do, you, you found yourself thinking, I wonder, what, I wonder what Joe would tell me what to do about that, or what would Sally say about, about that situation? There should be that constant transfer of knowledge and skills from older to younger, just as there can be between master and apprentice, father, son, mother, daughter. And part of what Paul describes here in these first verses of Titus chapter 2, it is a community where that sort of experience is being passed on. Some of it through Titus's teaching, some of it through Titus's example, but some of it through the passing on of truth, experience, and, and practical working out of the faith from older to younger. And that's what we're looking at this evening. You remember why, why Paul wrote this letter? He, he, he finds that his, he sends his apprentice Titus to Crete to complete the work of establishing the church there by appointing elders and by resisting the work of false teachers who were starting to take the church in a wrong direction. And, and his particular burden for the Christians in Crete was that they would live the good life. In other words, that they would be committed to the authentic gospel, that they would believe the right things, and that they would be able to live out the gospel. In other words, that they would do the right things. Because, as we've already said, that sort of gospel character is rooted in gospel doctrine. The, the the, the, the gospel truth produces a life characterized by good works. 
And, he, and here we see that, that one of the strategies, as it were, of achieving that good life is grace, as one writer says, is grace rippling through the community of the church. Paul, we saw last time, described the false teachers at the end of chapter 1, and he said that they're really not useful for anything. You see that verse 16 of chapter 1? They claim to know God, but by their actions they deny Him. They are detestable, disobedient, and unfit for doing anything good. There's no good life there, because there's no good truth there. And uh, their program will therefore not produce the good life, and he contrasts Titus with them. You see chapter 2, verse 1, you must teach what is in accord with sound doctrine. The, the ESV has it maybe slightly better, but as for you, there's a contrast there, but as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Titus is to stand out from them. He's to be different from them, and that was not an easy calling. We can, we can feel the, the, the burden of that for him. But there's a sense in which, of course, there is always, for the believer, this sort of call, but as for you. Here's what's going on around you, but, but as for you. Here's the way that your friends who don't know Jesus are living, but as for you. Here's the way that destructive gossip takes place in the, in the staff room, but as for you. Here are the moral standards of your generation, but, but as for you. Titus had a particular call to, to go God's way against a backdrop of ungodliness, but, but so do you and, and so do I. His particular call was to teach the faith and what flowed from the faith, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Now, at first glance, you might think that, that what's going to follow then is a, a lot of theological discussion, but it's not. It's very practical instruction because the key is it's what accords with sound doctrine. It's what goes along with sound doctrine. It's part of the outworking of what the truth is. And you see, he talks about how this works out in various different people groups within the church, older men, older women, and by implication, younger women, younger men, and then slaves. And we're going to look at each just in a little bit of detail. In fact, really not very much detail tonight. We don't have loads of time to do this. But, but let me just say, before we jump into the detail, all of this, of course, assumes a new relationship with the Lord Jesus Christ. It's, it's one of the dangers of, of looking at a, a small part of a New Testament letter without remembering the whole letter, because all of the letter is assumed here. The sound doctrine is assumed, and the sound doctrine that is assumed is that people who are in the wrong with God need to be in the right with God. And we cannot get right with God by ourselves, but God in His mercy sends His Son to take our punishment and commands all people everywhere to repent and bow, bow, bow before this Jesus. And as we do that, we are then brought into this right relationship with God, made His children, and then, chapter 2, called to live a new life. So that's all assumed here. And this sort of wonderful community lies on the other side of a transforming encounter with Jesus. 
So if you're here tonight and, and you think, oh, I've sort of stumbled into a group of people who are involved in some sort of betterment project, some sort of social project to, to try it really hard, to live really, really well, that's not the case at all. Don't, don't take that away as the heart of Christianity. It's not. That, that's like, if you think that that's what the gospel is, it's, it's like climbing to the moon and just as impossible. This is about the life that should result, the life that is only possible after meeting the Lord Jesus Christ, who changes our standing with the creator of the universe. It's amazing. And that leads to a graceful life and the, the possibility then of grace rippling through the church. So what about these groups? Well, older men, first of all, verse 2, teach the older men to be temperate, worthy of respect, self-controlled, and sound in faith, in love, and in endurance. So I think we're, we're justified in assuming that the things that Titus is told to teach the particular groups are, are areas in which they are lacking or areas in which they are likely to be specially tempted because of their stage in life, because of the culture around them, or whatever it might be. These older men, therefore, it can be assumed, were tempted to indulge themselves, to be grumpy, to be weary of giving themselves in service. And that's probably not a peculiarly first-century set of temptations. You remember the rich farmer in the Bible? He did really, really well. The early retirement offering, uh, or, or the early retirement opportunity opened up for him. And what does he say to himself? He says, take life easy, eat, drink, and be merry. All these years I've been slaving away, now I owe it to myself to have a break. Look at all those uh, years of effort. Now I'm going to treat myself. I deserve it. You don't have much hair left, but where, hair you're going to have, you're going to let down. And Paul says, no, you're going to be temperate and self-controlled in your later years. Or, or grumpy. Advancing years, we know, can bring a cynicism within some of us. I've seen it all before, that sort of attitude. Nobody recognizes what I have done. It will never work. Or, or I deserve some peace, leave me alone. Now, now, this boundary between old and young in the Bible is around somewhere, the commentators differ, but it's somewhere in the mid-40s. So I'm sort of straddling youth and old age, and I know that in here there's a grumpy old man just bursting to get out. Let me out the world, he's saying. Some of you have met him. Paul says, no, not grumpy, but full of love maintaining an open and generous heart towards others. Or, or weary, I've been at this so long. I've done my bit. It's time to take my foot off the accelerator and let somebody else serve me now. And Paul says, no, endurance. You keep going. And you see, in that way, as you do these things, you are therefore an older man worthy of respect. That's what it says. And I think the implication is worthy of those who are coming behind you modeling their life on you. Grace 
ripples down through the congregation. Older men. Older women, verse 3, likewise teach the older women to be reverent in the way they live, not to be slanderers or addicted to much wine, but to teach what is good. So again, there seem to be particular temptations for older women. Like the older men, it is generally to sort of ease off on commitment so that they no longer live a reverent life. It seems that that, that reverent life is, is, is a life consciously lived before the face of God, a life that asks, how can I please my Lord today in this situation? And as, as for them, as they turn away from God, it implies that they turn on others, slander. Age sometimes, don't you think? Age sometimes brings with it less concern about what others think. That can be a good thing. But then sometimes as we get older, we feel more free to say things that we wouldn't have said in other days. And so sometimes our speech can get sharp, bruising to others. And here it seems that they indulge themselves, addicted to much wine. You remember the, the culture of Crete is one where gluttony is common. You see, if we take our foot off the accelerator, as it were, and we're not pursuing the Lord, we fall back into something. And what we fall back into is the culture of what's going on around us, what becomes normal for other people our age. So all of these temptations are to be avoided. Indeed, they are to be taught against by Titus. But you notice that the older women are to teach too, and they are to teach what is good, and the people that they are to teach are the younger women. You see, here is grace rippling through the church, down through the generations. Verse 4, they can train the younger women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled and pure, to be busy at home, to be kind and to be subject to their husbands so that no one will malign the Word of God. Now, I'm, I'm sure that there are some who would want to press these verses into service in the debate on whether women uh, who are mothers should have careers. But I think it's fair to say that that concept probably wasn't really around for Paul in the first century. So, if we're going to embark on that discussion, it's not maybe the best starting point. But what it is saying certainly is that if a woman is a mother and a wife, they need to be helped to see that there is a real area of service for them. There is where they're able to live out their faith. And you see, maybe, maybe one of these young mothers, wives, got into that situation where her husband was up at half five in the morning to drive off to, I'm trying to think what the capital of Crete is, to, to the capital of Crete to do his work. And, and, and he wasn't back till 7 o'clock. And he came back at 7 o'clock with a laptop. And he was on that laptop until 11 o'clock. And she was thinking, how, how do I love this man? I hardly know him. And I don't know him. But there was probably an older woman in the congregation who'd done that and been there and got the T-shirt. You see, one generation does not need to reinvent the wheel that the previous generation was using very, very well. One generation can tell the next. We should probably say something here about the call for, for wives to be submissive to their husbands. We, 
We've dealt with this in, in much greater depth on other occasions, but it's very clear that there are mutual responsibilities for husband and wife laid out in the Scriptures. The, the husband is to love his wife sacrificially as Christ loved the church. The wife is to submit to her husband's leadership as he does that. Let me, let me read you a quote from Tim Chester I was really struck with. People, he said, may not like it when we talk about self-control and submission, but they find it attractive when we live it. Unbelievers are repelled about the Christian teaching on headship within marriage, but they are often attracted by the Christian marriages they see. We should see here, too, that, that there are at least a couple of things that the Bible assumes as being really valuable, and yet which our culture denigrates. One is the value of motherhood. What a high value the Bible places on the role of a mother in raising and shaping children. The world, of course, minimizes this. It encourages mothers to subcontract that to others as swiftly as possible. And yet this is a good place, a great place, in which to serve the Lord. The other is the value of age. I'm just lining my nest for the next decades. But, but it's true to say, isn't it, that our culture really denigrates older generation. In other societies around the world, older people are respected and listened to. Their wisdom and experience is sought. That's very much the biblical picture. Proverbs 16, 31 a gray head is a crown of glory. Death to every hair um, product out there. A gray head is a crown of glory. Job 12, 12, wisdom is with aged men, with long life is understanding. Motherhood, age, things that our culture would say really doesn't matter. The Bible says these are great. Younger men, let's keep moving. Younger men. Younger men just get a sentence, but, but what a sentence. Similarly, encourage, verse 6, encourage the young men to be self-controlled. Now, there's an urgency about this word encourage here. It can be translated urge. It's imperative, Paul is saying, demand this of the young men. They are not to be out of control, but they are to be under control. They, they are to be bringing, actively bringing, all their desires and activities and ambitions under the control of God. One commentator says this. Let me, this is great. In youth, blood runs hotter, and the passions speak more commandingly. In youth, there are more opportunities to go wrong. Young people are thrown into company where temptation can speak with the most compelling voice. He has not yet taken upon himself the responsibility of a home and a family, and he does not yet possess the anchors which hold an older person in the right way through sheer sense of obligation. In youth, there are far more opportunities to make shipwreck of life. For that very reason... The first thing at which any young person must aim is self-mastery. No one can ever serve others until he has mastered himself. 
Proverbs 16.32 says, He who rules his spirit is greater than he who takes a city. Those of us who are older know the truth of that verse. He who rules his spirit is greater than he who takes a city. Young people, there's a challenge for us. And when I say young people, it's that under 40s, you'll be at the barbecue on Monday night. Is it hard? Oh, yes. Will the, will the winds of the culture try to blow you off course? Oh, yes, they will. Do you know this little poem? One ship sails east and another west by the self-same winds that blow. Tis the set of the sails and not the gales that tells the way we go. And so the question is, how are our sails set tonight? As a young person, maybe especially as a young man, are you determined as God would help you? Are you determined that in every situation and circumstance you enter, your sails are set so that you travel Godward into godliness in self-control? I say that the young men only have a sentence. That's true in a sense. But they also have an example in that Titus, who is probably in that sort of early 40s age bracket himself, he is to be their example. Verse 7, in everything, set them an example by doing what is good. In your teaching, show integrity, seriousness, and soundness of speech that cannot be condemned, so that those who oppose you may be ashamed because they have nothing bad to say about us. You see Paul saying, Paul, they're going, to, they're going to listen to you, of course they are, but they're going to see you, and they're going to see you under pressure. They're going to see you when you are tempted. They're going to see the fact that you're doing all of this in the midst of opposition. This was not easy for Titus, and there will be tough times, and in the midst of that, set them an example so that they will be godly, young men. And then just in a word, slaves. You remember that the culture of Crete was, was one where laziness was endemic. It was just the way things were. People approached their lives saying, what can I get away with? And that was the situation, therefore, in the workplace. Now, the, the, the parallel with the slaves of that day and the employees of this day are not exact, but they're not miles apart. And in many ways, in the Christian thinking, the, the call here is to, to enter the workplace with, with this frame of mind saying, not what can I get away with, but what can I do? How can I be the best at my job that I can be? How can I truly bless my employer? How can I please them? So verse 9, teach slaves to be subject to their masters in everything, to try to please them, not to talk back to them, and not to steal from them, but to show that they can be fully trusted. I know there's lots of talk today, and, and, and a sense, I think, that we have, maybe not a misplaced sense at all, of, of Christians being squeezed out of certain jobs. We, we, we know that because of our convictions and beliefs. 
But maybe if we were as God's people more obedient to this verse, then up and down the country, employers would be saying, do you know what, these Christians, I don't agree with some of their views, but I would take them any day because they're the best workers I've got. I can't find workers like them anywhere. And you, so this is part of Paul's point. They are to be witnesses to the world so that, verse 10, in every way they will make the teaching about God our Savior attractive. The SV says, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. It's the same, actually, with the command for wives to love their husbands in verse 5. It's a witness to the world. The world is watching. So we're planning a Christianity Explored in January. I said that this morning. So you imagine your boss or your, your line manager turns up at our Christianity Explored Monday the 8th of January, 8 p.m. And I say to them, hi there, it's great to see you. I don't think I've met you before. And they say, no. I said, what's brought you along? Well, I have had very little experience of Christian things. I've got to be honest, they say. But I have this employee. And I know that he or she is a Christian. And they're just the most remarkable employee you have. They're not perfect. I had to do a difficult appraisal on them recently. And yet even the way they responded to that was just so gracious. So tell me, what is this Christianity all about. You see, that's what we're called to, isn't it? Maybe that helps you as you go into work tomorrow. I'm sure there's much, much more we can say about this, but you, you see that the, the context that is assumed by all of this, the, the context that is assumed by a church where grace is rippling through the congregation. It is one where relationships really, really matter. There is there's the teaching of Titus here. There is the example of Titus, no doubt about that. But there are those mentoring relationships of the older woman with the younger, and I think we can assume too, the older man with the younger man. Now, this will not happen if we treat the church like a cinema where we come in and we watch the show and we go out again with no interaction. It won't even happen if you go to a fellowship group and you just answer the questions and you pray a prayer and you go home again. But it might begin to happen as you get to know an older Christian, if you're a younger Christian, and you say, do you know what? This is what I'm facing. Did you ever face that? Or, or as you, as an older Christian, get to, you know, a younger Christian, and you say, how are things going with you? Can, can I pray for anything in your life? And grace will ripple <laughs> through the congregation. And please, God, out to the world. Let's pray together. Lord, sometimes it is these practical and obvious things that we find so very, very difficult. 
we confess that sometimes we've, we've just settled for a, a level of godliness that is comfortable and manageable in our own strength. Break that in us, we pray, whether we're older men or younger men, older women or younger women, whether we're employees or employers. Help us, O Lord, to be godly and to pass on something of our knowledge of you to those who will pick up the baton behind us. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.